he is risen. So we're celebrating Easter tide. This is Easter for the church is not just that moment of thinking about the resurrection on the day in which we celebrate it, but it's a season when after Jesus rose from the dead where the church begins to think about what does this mean, it actually becomes right in the center of what we know to be our Christian faith. Here is Jesus. He was murdered by crucifixion and um, stabbed in the heart with a spear post-mortem and uh, put in the grave, wrapped with grave clothes. And they mourned because he was dead. But then that third day, he got out to their complete surprise and a tad of freak out. Um, This whole idea of resurrection ends up becoming in the center of what we call the Christian faith. At some point, belief in resurrection will become the most important part of the gospel message to you if you are a Christ follower. Because you will come to the place where you're about to take your last breath. Uh, Hopefully you will not go suddenly or unprepared. But either way, prepared or unprepared, we all die. And uh, there'll be no future breakthroughs that will quash that. In other words, no one's getting out of here alive. Right? But after death... Jesus experienced it himself. He overcame it. And in the Apostles' Creed, we say week after week, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we believe in the life of the world to come. This idea of resurrection and the hope that it brings was always central to the Christians through history. Now, in our culture, we tend to think less and less about this because we live longer and longer. But up until about 150 years ago, people didn't live nearly as long as they live now. In fact, the demographics from the first century, the people that were there when Jesus was alive, the demographics were this. 25% of all children born in that first century died by the time they were one years old. Another 25% died before they were 10 So by the time somebody had lived for 10 years, 50% of the people that had been born and that year they were born died. And then the majority of the rest lived to a whopping 28 to 35. There were a few that lived longer. They were called the sages and the saints and the philosophers. But for the most part, people died very young. And that carried through really up to the 19th century. Lots of death was everywhere. Friends, family, neighbors, were dying, and when they died, they weren't t- shuffled away by some mortician uh, uh, in some mortuary. They were taken care of by the family, laid out on tables in the kit- in the uh, family room, and uh, washed and cared for until they were buried. Death was very present in the world, and so when Jesus died, it was a very common thing for them to see. What wasn't was that he came out of death. And it changed everything because what it did was it basically said, you don't have to be afraid of this because I've overcome it. We read in Hebrews 2, the writer says, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, watch, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and watch, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by what? 
their fear of death. So what happened was the, the people in the, in the world, I think it's still true today, people who have this basic sense of a fear of death. In fact, uh, psychologists tell us that phobias all emerge from some sense of fear of death, right? Backed up. And into your uh, afraid to lose your job. Why? Because ultimately you'll, it might kill you. You know, there's all this idea of being afraid of death. And somehow Jesus' resurrection screamed to them, hey, we don't have to be afraid of this. We may die, but we don't have to fear it because Jesus overcame death. And so the church all through its history would engage in giving themselves, leading into the world, even if it cost them their lives because they believed that death was not something to be feared. That's why when everyone fled from the cities, like physicians and leaders and senators would flee from Rome during these times of plague and these very congested cities, the church would stay. And they would care for the poor and they, or care for the sick. And they would, a lot of them, as they cared for the sick, got sick and died. They would bury the dead. They did it because they thought, we don't have to be afraid of death. Even if we die, we live. Right? This all came from this idea of resurrection. Paul basically calls this the big Lebowski, right? This is the big deal, this idea of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, the, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And watch this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. This is hugely profound what he's saying here. He's basically saying if this, if this resurrection isn't going to happen, then this whole thing is a misfire. This whole thing is worthless. That's how central this idea was of resurrection to the early church. Jesus was called the firstborn from the dead, which means others will follow, which means we do not have to be afraid of death, which means we can be committed to whatever, irrespective of where it goes, because we belong to him who is life. That's why the early church would sing in mocking tone at death. Here's an example of one of the songs they would sing. This is out of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul sets up the the song, when the perishable have been clothed with imperishable, he's talking about resurrection, and the mortal has been clothed with immortality, then the saying which is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Here's a song. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It has this note of mocking in it, right? We're not afraid of death. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This was so profoundly real to them that after the resurrection, when they'd meet one another and greet one another, the first thing out of their mouth was, he is risen. And they would respond, it's risen indeed. I mean, it became like, hey, how you doing? Doing pretty good, right? It's just, it's kinda, it was this liturgy of greeting. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Because they were living centered around the fact, death can't beat us. Na, 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 na. <laughs> there was a weak chuckle out there. <laughs> the claim of the future resurrection was held in tension with the reality that the church believed 
that the Holy Spirit had come upon them in Pentecost. It's what we're leaning up to. We're living in the tension of Eastertide, which culminates in Pentecost, where the Spirit falls upon the church. And the reason that's so significant is that they saw that it was the Holy Spirit who was the agency through which the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And to connect with the Holy Spirit meant that on some level we were connecting with resurrection before we die. In Romans 8 and 11, the scripture says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, the real switch of the New Testament from the Old Testament is the spirit used to rest on kings and prophets and temples made with hands. But in the New Testament, the spirit rests upon and lives in human And so he says that the spirit of God is in you. The one who raised Christ from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The very one who is the agency by which Jesus rose from the dead is living in us and he's doing something in us. He's giving life to us. It turns out the church believed it was the same kind of life that brought Jesus out of death, which would then imply we get to leave death while we still live. The death of sin, the death of fear, the death of brokenness, that we can actually come out of it because the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has found its home in you and in me. The early Christians believed that the power of resurrection wasn't a one-off event, you know, like some sort of burst of energy, but that it was more like a power plant that comes online. Once it comes online, the power stays on. And so we read in Ephesians 1, for this reason, Paul writes, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for people, for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he'll give you the spirit of wisdom. You get stuff and revelation, you'll see stuff so that you'll know him better. We need help to know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know three things. The hope to which he called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance because you're part of him and the saints, and thirdly, his incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like... Power went out. (laughs) (laughs) That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. See, what they were claiming is that the Holy Spirit's power that was released to raise Jesus from the dead is continuing. And that we need God to give us eyes to see that there's a power released toward us, that there's some some spout where the power comes out, that there's some kind of way that we can orient our lives where we start experiencing the resurrection power of God in our lives, which should make us live differently. They claim that the resurrection power from the Spirit is what enabled Christians to live beyond their natural human ability, that we could, because we're connected with the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, that we could be human plus that we could participate in something beyond ourselves. Uh, Peter said that we participate in the divine nature. 
Orthodox Christians call it theosis, which means we participate in God and somehow this mixture of humanity and God comes in us and we start changing. We start looking different. So we hear texts like Galatians 5. It says the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the result of interaction with, the result of encounter with, the result of communing with the Holy Spirit results in love, where we celebrate others, joy, where there's kind of this expectation of good, peace, which means things are appropriate, patience, which means you actually get along with people you live with, kindness, which is solicitousness, it's just, you're disposed to showing favor, goodness, which is a motive, faithfulness, which means you keep showing up, gentleness, which is a tenor of your soul, And self-control, which isn't about self-control, it's about God giving you energy so that your life can be controlled. Then all this comes to us because of the Spirit's engagement or our engagement with the Spirit. If you can figure out how to move into the ghost, that's why I love to worship. When you sing, this morning I thought, oh, we have to sing more, preach less. Uh, just because I love just entering, when you have the presence of God in the spirit, or sometimes in prayer, this is one of the things as a charismatic, uh, I uh, speak in tongues, I'm a glossolalia guy, and, and, and it's one of the ways that I encounter the spirit. It, the more encounters, silence may be a spot where you, it, it, prayer, if you can move into this places where you sense the spirit and are open to the spirit, and there are places for you that will feel natural, and you hang there, you will change. Something will happen. You'll love people more. You'll freak yourself out. You'll be kind more. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I, those of you, if you remember the 60s, those of you who were alive long enough to remember that, you remember when people, they put way too much perfume on. Thankfully, that's not as bad. But man, back in the 60s, it's like they bathed in it. Especially the older gals, you know, they would, my mom's friends, whoosh, 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 and, they, and I'd come up, you could smell them a mile away, or a block away, and uh, I'd come up to them, and then they'd want to hug me, and they'd pull me, and they'd hug me, and then when I left them, I smelled like them for several hours. It lingered. See, there's something, there's something like that. When we lean in, it's a positive way instead of that negative way. Somehow when we lean into the spirit, we pick up fragrance. We pick up tenor. We pick up something that makes us different. And so Paul says, uh, those who belong to Christ Jesus, these ones that are, have this fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, etc. We belong to Christ Jesus. It ends up crucifying the ego, the sinful nature with its passions and desires that are out of control. And then he says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. See what he's saying to us is we need to figure out how to continue a living dialogue with the spirit of God, who's one of the persons of the Holy Trinity we know as God. So in our gospel reading today, Jesus vamps on the Spirit. And it's beautiful. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then he says, the world can't accept him because it It neither sees him nor knows him. Talking about the spirit, but you guys know him because he lives with you and he will be in you. See, there's that entrance of the spirit. See, the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying is he only gets seen by insiders. This isn't something you can try to explain to someone who doesn't have faith. This is only something you can taste in order to see.
You have to participate in it in order to get it. Somehow opening yourself up to God and somehow in that moment when you cross kind of a threshold of faith and there's a dawning of something in you, that's the spirit. And he's only seen by people who are insiders like that. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? Vis-a-vis the spirit. He says, be before long, the world will not see me any long, but you, anymore, but you will see me again vis-a-vis the Spirit. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves my, me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and will show myself to him. How will he show himself to us? By the Spirit. Somehow as you find ways to open your heart in the spirit in worship, in Eucharist, in whatever, asking for prayer, reading the text, sacred text, and submitting to it, any of those ways, any of those avenues are on-ramps to encounters with the spirit. And if you will have encounters with the spirit, you will not be orphaned. You will sense a revelation of who Jesus is. Life will begin to change because you're tapping into the power that will raise you from the dead that raised Jesus from the dead. And one day it will raise you physically, but right now it'll raise you from being an idiot. Now in reflection on this idea of resurrection, let me say, and and the spirit, let me say three quick things about the spirit. Number one, in some way, the presence of the Holy Spirit is like the presence, physical presence of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus actually claims that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, these encounters that we have in things like worship, that, that, that as we gather together, as we come in our own hearts, that, that it's actually the presence of the Holy Spirit we encounter is actually better than if Jesus were walking around on this planet right now and chumming with you. Well, that's his claim. It says in John 16, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, The counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It will be a win. Now, is that true or not is up to your heart. He's basically saying, I'm better in your midst by my spirit than if I was physically seen in this service right now. That's what his claim is. Second thing I want to say about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that is that the Spirit causes a deep shift, which I've already alluded to, in how people live. These forces like love and joy and peace and patience, the result of this dialogue between us and the Spirit, and something changes in us ontologically, is how a philosopher would say. In other words, in reality, there's an actual change. It's not something we fake. It's not something we pretend. It's something that happens. There's a, a beautiful authenticity that rings true about a person who's keeping in step with the Spirit and learning to find that spout where the Spirit comes out, right, kind of thing. But it's an authenticity that's attached more to principles than it is to feelings. Sadly, there's a a kind of false authenticity that masquerades as authenticity in our culture. It's a cult of authenticity where feelings in the moment are considered to be the most real things that we have to offer people around us. And these folks do nothing unless they really feel it. And, and uh, they participate in nothing unless they generally want to do it because they want to be genuine, right? 
And they often try to make this spiritual. You can hear it when folks say things like, oh, I don't know. I'm just feeling like the Lord is saying, insert whatever. Right? I'm not suggesting that it's bad to be honest about your feelings. You should be. But that doesn't mean you should let your feelings be the guide of your life. Right? I mean, an authenticity that puts everything in feeling language is not the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like to suggest to you that it's more often just childish selfishness, masquerading as spirit, me-firstness. I think we should be honest about our feelings, but then we should recognize that our feelings are seldom honest with us. Right? I mean, more often than not, what ends up happening is we have this waffling depending on the time of day, depending on the day of the week. You know, we go back and forth on things. There's an old, really old commercial that some of you remember because you're old people about Almond Joy and Mounds. You remember this from back in the, whatever it was, 80s. Sometimes you feel like I'm not. Sometimes you don't. As we're talking about Almond Joys or Mounds. The Almond Joys have nuts. Peter Paul, Mounds don't. Right? And, and it so captures this kind of idea of, of people that are living by this kind of false authenticity because sometimes you feel like a dad. Sometimes you don't. So you don't. Sometimes you feel like loving your spouse. Sometimes you don't. So let's get real. I don't. Right? Or sometimes you feel like going to work. Sometimes you don't. Or sometimes you feel like keeping your word. Sometimes you don't. Or sometimes you feel like eating right. Most times you don't. <laughs> this is bad authenticity. This kind of authenticity might lead you smack into an unnecessary divorce. This kind of authenticity, this, it, it'll, it, it, it could cause you to quit a job prematurely. It can cause you to justify abandoning friendships that really are important for your development. I, I, I think... We need more than honesty with our feelings. I think we need discernment about our feelings. Discernment has honesty in it, but it has more than just honesty. It examines things over time. It examines your feelings that you have over time. It considers comparisons like, how has God spoken to me in the past and what is really happening here? And you give it space. It, it asks what issues or needs are being touched in me about this decision and is that why I'm feeling up and down about it? What's really going on here? Are there any ethical concerns that transcend how I feel that I should be committed to even if it hurts? This is discernment. Discernment is about Asking others for their sight of you. It's outside instead of insight. We all have insight about ourselves. But sometimes our insight is limited and we need outside. What do you see? What does it look like from your perspective? You know me. You know my propensities and my weaknesses. What is, what is going on? What do you see? We need that outside. Principles, which this kind of thing leads us to, has a real bad rap in a culture that's dominated by the cult of authenticity. Because when you talk about principles, you talk about things like persistence, righteousness, appropriateness, so not sexy. But these are the things that make us faithful as spouses, employees, employers, friends. And, and if you feel, you know, that you want to be committed to just whatever you 
want to do at whatever time, then that's keeping it real. I think you're headed for trouble and catastrophe in your life. When you speak to someone you love, it's okay to express your feelings, but not just your feelings, right? So if you're talking to a friend or to your spouse, I mean, you can tell them, you know, I really feel like we're drifting from each other. I mean, it's good to be honest about that, but don't just leave it there. You know, I think we're drifting from each other. Right? <laughs> You're going to end up just speaking death to your thing. Add to that. But you know what? Move to principle. You know what? We love each other. We're for each other. Let's work on this. Let's focus on each other. Let's go on some dates. Let's figure this out. See, don't just confess what you're feeling as though that's being truthful. Do that, but then lean into principle is what the calling here. The I gotta keep it real culture has a hint of truth in it, but untethered from principle, it will cause you trouble in the long run. Then lastly, final thing I want to say about the spirit, and this point is both great and not so great. And that is this, the Holy Spirit will always bring surprise and unpredictability into your life. The text says in John, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. He says, where the wind blows, it blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is for people that are born of the Spirit because the Spirit is the way he is. You don't always know where you're coming from or where you're going. It's just you're kind, of, you're kind of in this space of unknowability. Now, we may say we're open to the Spirit, and we may say we want to be Spirit-led people, but I'm not so sure that's true. Not on a practical level. Because I think most of us want things our way on our timeline. We're open to surprising things, but only the surprising things like spiritual highs that we have at church when we like that particular song, right? We like that kind of surprise, but other kinds we don't like. And sometimes I wonder, particularly in my charismatic background, if, if worship service didn't resemble some kind of, a, like we were popping some kind of a mood-altering pill, right? Lordy, I want to feel good and carefree today. We want to be happy. We want to experience abundance, and we hope the Holy Ghost is present to accommodate all that. I think that's mostly what we think. We want him to help us, not form us. We want him to lead us into more joy and contentment, not draw us into things that make demands upon us. We want him to lift us emotionally, not convict us spiritually. We, we don't want to be surprised. We want our dreams to be guaranteed and realized. We only want him to comfort us not to confront and disturb us. The truth is, much of what the Spirit wants to do in us is the kind of change that our ego in us hates. The Spirit. He's always fluid, full of energy to bring change. It makes us more fully human. He purges us from loving things too much or loving things wrongly. In scripture, he's described as an elusive wind, a fire, a river or stream of water, a hovering movement, a disturbance to what is the spirit. We never arrive when we follow the spirit. We're only in a kind of uncharted river we jump into when we lean into him. And rivers have places that are kind of lazy and peaceful. Then there's rushing sections and then Rivers sometimes, usually along the way, somewhere along the way, turn dangerous. 
dangerous rapids, tall waterfalls. We don't create the river or control the river of God. We can only recognize it and enter it and choose to enjoy it no matter what section we're in, allowing its current to take us where it wills to go. This is the spirit-filled woman. This is the spirit-filled man. Irish poet John O'Donohue said this, and I love it. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. The fact that results of the divine flow of spirit in my life, it's not in my control. That fact is both surprising and disappointing. Because it means that the big stuff God has for you is not necessarily in your control. And it calls us to cooperate, to simply jump into the river. If you back over your life in your mind. We all get this. We all have these ghost stories, right? Where I thought I was going to, but I started out on this trail, but then bam, I was surprised by, we all have these stories. And though we generally don't like losing control, losing control is a big part of what we call lordship. And lordship is at the center of what we call salvation. Jesus is Lord. Don't misunderstand me. I think that we get to do what we want to do unless we're moved upon or messed with by God. But if you are moved upon and and when you are messed with, you must obey. Simply jump into the river and realize that you're careening forward vis-a-vis sovereignty (laughs) and say yes. And when you feel yourself slipping into that place, I just think you ought to do three things. Be alert, vigilant, pay attention, ask, don't presume. Number two, be open to whatever, whenever, wherever, with whomever. And number three, be quick to obey. See, this community has lived in the river for a while. I just saw one of the guys with a sanctuary t-shirt. It's got those waves. I thought, river, (laughs) right? And we're river people. I love that you guys are river people who are gung-ho about where we're going, even when we don't know exactly what's beyond the next bend. And it sounds like Niagara Falls. (laughs) It's beautiful and terrifying because he is risen. 